Hi, I'm Yannick Wisdala, and you're listening to the Yannick Wisdala Podcast. Hey, it's Yannick Wisdala here. Uh, We are back with the Yannick Wisdala podcast. It has been uh, almost four years since we recorded an episode, and uh, it was it was just time to do it. Um, I used to do this as a as a way to kind of get my thoughts out there and and get them get them audible. It was a way to record my own practice sessions and listen back to what I was doing and kind of remember the good things and scrub out the bad things. And uh, you know, I'm sitting here practicing a little bit. I thought, why not throw the mic up and and bring back the podcast. Um, This also kind of stems from not only stuff I'm working on melodically and improvisation-wise, but from some questions I was getting through Facebook, through videobasedlessons.tv, through all kinds of mediums, Twitter, Instagram, you name it, um, about the simplicity of melody and how you you can work on that. Um, I will say that in any kind of improvising, I got to say that the, the, for me anyway, the, the, the most rewarding, the most educational element of learning how to improvise and, and um, kind of uh, uh, growing those sensibilities uh, of improvisation in my own playing has been through listening. So it's not like I can tell you, oh, there's this great exercise and we're going to play this 251 and change the way you think about music because I give you these two melodic ideas and this one motific development idea. No. These tools that um, I want to talk about today and that I will probably continue to talk about throughout the rest of my life because they form a large part of my process are just that. They are just a part of the process. They are probably, if, if, if the most honest way to say it, I think is they are probably, these concepts are probably part of my analysis of what I've learned by ear. So, so the, the things I've learned through, you know, listening to records and transcribing solos, um, I've formulated into several concepts, several practice ideas, well not several, thousands I would imagine at this point of practice ideas, um, to help improve my time, my sound, and my overall kind of awareness of, of what's going on when I'm improvising. You know, there are two really important things. And I do this a lot. I think in my head and I, I play I play the bass while I'm thinking and and sometimes come up with really great stuff. So I'm gonna do that throughout the podcast. Don't let that put you off. Um, and right now, because I know I'm gonna talk a little bit about playing two five ones, that's what that's what my fingers are doing to kind of warm up and get ready for that. But what I was saying was was that the, the, these these things, through listening and through transcribing so many so many solos and song lyrics and melodies and chord changes and rhythmic ideas, um, I've, I've formulated a lot of practice routine ideas, a lot of a lot of ideas to populate my practice routine, and a lot of ideas to maintain those sensibilities. There are two, there are only two very variables that that, uh, that are conscious when I improvise and those are um, repetition and variation so I would say um, absolutely everything else harmony modes theory scales arpeggios all of those theory based kind of analytical 
um, components of music are as far from my mind as possible when I'm when I'm improvising. Um, that's that's been a huge part of my process to get rid of those things in in the chain in the chain of events from the idea happening in my brain to the performance um, coming out in my bass and you the audience um, hearing that performance. So the more things I can take out of that chain, the better. That's and that that goes for any style of music I'm playing. I want it to be. Um, reaction. I want to. I want to be reacting to the musical situation around me. Of course, have a well-stocked vocabulary of 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 words and phrases and paragraphs and sentences and ideas, um, musically speaking. Um, but but really to be reacting to the musical situation around me and being able to play whether it's in that style or to have that, that musical conversation with those musicians around me, regardless of the style. Also. Um, so why don't we get to some music here? Um, I have a 251 in the looper. Really simple, 251 in C major, so it's D minor to G7 to C, and here comes the six, that's A7. So <laughs> I can already just analyze what I did right there and make a great example of um, repetition and variation. You know, I was just using G. It couldn't have been a lot simpler. I mean, there was definitely rhythmic variation, um, and that's something, like I said before, that's learned through listening. It's just like a language. I didn't learn to speak English by somebody first teaching me about grammar and punctuation and spelling. I learned to speak English by listening to people around me speak that language, and that became such a part of my muscle memory that I can now I guess, uh, see, my English is failing me as I try to explain the music, but I can now speak in quite complex terms, musically speaking, um, whilst being understood by, that, by a person who's playing with me um, or an audience that's listening to me. So that's hugely important to understand that it's not about theory. It's not about knowing all the modes of the major scale or the harmonic minor or the melodic minor. It's, it's got nothing to do with all of those things in terms of the fundamentals of actually performing and actually playing. It's got everything to do with experience and with listening. So when I go back and listen, and, you know, I'm not, I can't because I'm recording right now, I can't listen to exactly what I just played. But the gist of it was that I used just a single note with some rhythmic variation um, to, to create interest. And then when that became repetitive, that was my cue to change. So again, the two things I'm thinking about while I'm improvising, while I'm performing, are repetition or, or, or variation. And again, let's... So I'm just using G. And I'm not just using rhythm for variation there as well. I'm using, I'm changing the sound of the note slightly as well. I'm bending slightly. I'm using slight vibrato here and there. So there are a, a lot of elements that go into creating variation, even with a simple idea like just one note. And then eventually in my previous performance, I, I came up with with something a little. Uh, I came up with the variation. I moved away from that G. 
and kind of release that tension. You know, I was creating tension by repetition. I wasn't creating tension by playing outside the key so much, which is a, a very effective way of creating tension. I was recreating tension uh, with, the, with the repetitive nature of playing that G. And then I kind of adopting a little bit more of a bebop approach there with certain with, uh, with, with certain notes. It's definitely not specifically bebop, but a, a, a few elements of bebop. And and I'm definitely not trying to play in a particular style. I'm not trying to play in a bebop style or a post-bop style or a modern style. I've always wanted to have my own style, and that's always been my my concept. So whether you hear or I hear that I do have my own style regardless of whether we hear that that's always been the motivation to practice and the motivation to assimilate more vocabulary has been that I want my own sound I want my own unique voice I want my own time feel I, I, I want to be you know be able to stand aside from the masses of people who do do really just one thing I've always want you know I've always wanted to be an artist I've always pursued that so I'm just telling you that to, to let you know the motivation behind what I practice and why I practice um, and how that is hugely important important to me and it's something that if, if you're considering being an artist or being a solo performer of some sort that's something I highly encourage and it's something that when you go and listen back to some of your favorite musicians when you go back and listen to if you're a Miles Davis fan for instance or a John Coltrane fan or a Charlie Parker fan or a Charles Lloyd fan or a Keith Jarrett fan or a Joe Henderson fan any of any great jazz artist um, of the of the past 60 years if you're a fan of any of those people what I'm sure you'll be able to notice if you haven't already is that they do have a unique voice and if you listen to three trumpet players if you listen to you know Dizzy Gillespie and you listen to Miles Davis and then you listen to like a more, maybe a more modern player like a Winter Marsalis, you should be able to hear a very distinct difference between each of those three voices. Same with piano players. You know, if you take, you know, uh, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, and Keith Jarrett, all Miles Davis sidemen. If you take those three three players, and 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 listen to you know. 30 seconds of each one, you should be able to identify a, a huge number of differences between their sound. And, and imagine that when, when, when they're playing an instrument as specifically predefined as a piano. Imagine that, you know, you can put, you could put three Steinways that each had the, their one serial number apart, made by the same person at the same time. Uh, three instruments that probably couldn't sound more identical and put those three piano players uh, down next to each other and, and they would sound so completely different in their note selection, in their time and in the, in, and in the sound. You know, their sonic range on that instrument would be so different. You could have all three record on the same piano and, 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 and you know, notice vast differences between the style and sound of their playing so that's kind of what I'm getting at and what I always encourage you not only to to notice and to and to be aware of and to and to, and to understand like wow okay there's a reason I like you know it might be share or, or it might be um it might be the Thompson twins or it might be it might be a, any number it could be cutting crew it could be uh, uh um it could be Kenny Garrett it could be so many of uh, 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 such a variation of different artists that you might be into but just being aware of why you like them and what stands out about that artist and 
and how they arrived at that point. That, that can be a huge motivator and a huge catalyst for your practice routine um, and for the kind of content you're working on and for the kind of intent with which you play music. You know, it's, I don't recommend your intent being to copy or to replicate um, and that be the end of the process. I think it's very important to copy and replicate when you're a huge fan of someone um, and to figure out what they were doing, but then to take it the next, you know, the next step or the next hundred steps further to somehow assimilate that language and that vocabulary that you've learned from that person into your own playing. So we kind of got off two, five ones there a little bit, but I think that's kind of super important information. That's something that I... You know, it took me a while to figure out, but something that's, that's a massive part of my life and my career now and my motivation and most importantly, my intent when I play music. Um, that's, that's, those are just the, some, of the, some of the many building blocks of, of what it is I do and why it is I do it. Um, and back to what I do, uh, which we were talking about and I was playing a little bit. A little bit. Um, the simplicity with which you can improvise over over such a um, a standard progression like a like a, uh, a once you know a, a two five one six two five one six round and round like we have in this loop, the the simplicity with which you can go about it is is astounding to me and how musical you can be um, with very little harmonic or melodic um, information or. or, or ability even you know and it's it's even better when you can restrict yourself to playing very few notes and and being musical with that you're going to get so much more out of your rhythmic sensibilities when you restrict yourself harmonically harmonically and melodically and um it's all going to to add to your your prowess and your ability as an improviser and as a musician again regardless of the style you're playing in um so I might, you know, I might just restrict myself to playing up, up and down, up the C major scale. Maybe those are the only notes I'm going to let myself use to improvise over this, uh, uh, over this two five one. Um, bearing in mind, we also we do have that A seven with the C sharp. That's kind of our one chord tone, theoretically speaking, that steps outside of our parameter here. But let's see how far we can get just using the notes in C major. I'm guessing most people listening to this can play a C major scale that you guys understand the concept of a 251, it being in this case D minor 7 to G7 to C major 7, and then A7 being the 6. Um, and, and just take a listen and see how I'm really, I, I might mess up, of course, <laughs> um, but I'm really going to try and stick to just using the notes within C major for 30 seconds, 60 seconds, something like that, um, to highlight how much mileage you can get out of something so harmonically simple. See, I made a mistake. I just missed the note completely. So. Um, Welcome to the club. Doesn't matter how long you've been playing, uh, you're always going to make mistakes. Um, There are definitely moments there where I really have to force myself um, 
to not play that C sharp, to not follow the harmony and, and kind of as I naturally would. You know, using C major, just C major over a 2-5-1 is not something I program myself to do when I'm performing live in front of an audience. This is really just a practice routine thing and something to highlight to you listening to this that you, you can get a lot of mileage out of it. So I hope you heard in there. I was using some ghost notes and some... Some, some things like that. So there was a sense of that E flat in there very briefly to slide up to the E or pull down to the D. Um, but again, essentially just decorating a C major scale in order to move around a 2-5-1. Uh, rather than getting caught up in licks and in shapes and in patterns, I just restricted myself to that scale and, and, and used you know what melodic and rhythmic sensibilities I've gained through listening to music to, to improvise. So anyone trying to get into this or anyone uh, wanting to get better at this, I would say start super, super simple. I think, I think the first Miles Davis solo I transcribed was on um, Freddie Freeloader from Kind of Blue. I'm pretty sure that was, that was the one. It's like a blues in B flat. And it's really something like that's like the opening phrase. Very, very, very simple. Um, and it gave me kind of a roadmap, a little framework of how to get around a blues, a 12-bar blues in B-flat, um, a, a super common form in jazz, um, and just transcribing that solo. And it took a while, as simple as it is, you know, I transcribe solos like that maybe in 10 minutes now or 20 minutes, uh, but, but then it took me some, some hours to get the notes right, and I wasn't completely aware of how the harmony worked and I wasn't aware of Miles's style or I didn't really know key phrases of his playing yet where I could identify and go like oh I've heard him play that before and that's what that is so it, it was a, a real education in terms of uh, uh, getting a foot in the door of having a framework a roadmap um, and, and just a way to move around this blues and 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 start to sound like I knew what I was doing. That was that was the greatest thing I think was was that moment of playing along with Miles and being like, wow, I I can sound like this. This isn't impossible. This thing I was listening to for so long is not impossible to attain. And here I am. I can go after it. And I've got this Miles Davis solo now. So why not transcribe something by John Coltrane or Sonny Stitt or any of these other people, Stan Getz, that I'm listening to. Um, and, and of course, there started this the, the, my, my journey down this road of listening to other musicians and transcribing them, transcribing them a whole lot. Um, and starting to assimilate tons and tons and tons of vocabulary. Now, most of which I have to say I have completely forgotten. There are Stan Getz solos that I worked on for weeks and weeks on end that I maybe I could sing them along if the record came on, but I certainly couldn't play them note for note anymore like I could do back then. But it was the repetition and the sheer volume of um, of stylistically appropriate music or stylistically interesting music that I was listening to at the time. It was the sheer volume of that that added to my kind of my improvising, my sound, my time, my phrasing, all of those muscle memory elements that are, that are now, after 20 years, so ingrained in my playing that I'm, I'm pretty good to go in, 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 in terms of having a good fundamental layer to draw from. Um, and I'm going to play a little bit more over the 2-5 and kind of start expanding the harmony. If something interesting comes up, I'll stop. Um, I'll tell you what it is. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll analyze it a little bit. We'll go over it um, and, and try and kind of uncloak any myths um, that you might think exist or that you might be hearing, um, the things that you don't understand. Oh, 
there, for instance, I went totally into some uh, some bebop sounding lines that I've played a bunch of times before. What did I play? Uh, uh, something like that, you know, I think I think that was a Coltrane lick that I transcribed probably from um, oof, maybe Locomotion or one of those tunes on um, on that Coltrane Blue Note album, maybe it was uh, from Blue Train, I'm not sure. Um, and then... I think I might have gotten that one from Lee Morgan. So just, just, just talking to you about that just now, thinking about Stan Getz and Coltrane and Lee Morgan and all those guys kind of snapped me back into a few ideas. Um, that have stayed with me, obviously. Things that I've, I've played so many times that they've stayed with me and kind of came out when the time was right. I, 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 you know, I'm going to listen back to this podcast, obviously, but um, right now it doesn't feel like it was forced. You know, it doesn't feel like what I was doing was forced um, in terms of, uh, of the performance of those licks. Like they were really specific licks and I can now remember where they came from. It just kind of came out naturally. And that's really the goal, you know. It's, I have no problem hearing, you know, um, hearing a, 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 a John Coltrane thing come out in, a, in, a, in another saxophone player's playing. You know, I have a massive problem with somebody just playing like John Coltrane because I can go listen to the records and there's not really anything so, you know, innovating in that. Um, but, you know, it coming out, a small snippet coming out as a, as a sign of like, you know, historical importance or something, you can tell that that person checked out someone like Coltrane or Stan Getz or Sonny Stitt. Um, I love that. I love that about my own playing. I love hearing that in other people's playing. And, and you know, my initial uh, reaction, I wanted to stop and analyze that and talk to you about it, but my initial um, kind of reaction to playing those licks was, okay, let's develop those ideas. Where can we take those ideas and not make them the John Coltrane lick anymore? You know, um, uh, so what do we have? Um, Okay. So I like that part of it. It was a component in the middle of the lick. Over the five chords, so that would happen over the G with the flat nine. I'm going up to that A flat. So I've got this G7 and with a flat nine in it and a sharp nine, like a G7 altered. Um, and I just like the shape of that. So that's one of the things I might take from that and just start moving all the way all around the instrument. Um, Thank you. 
and maybe coming back and playing it in the midst of the original lick um, to give it some more context or to, to, you know, just to come back to an original idea like that. But there are just so many things. Moving in whole steps, half steps. See now I'm just you know switching off the loop and exploring the sounds and figuring out where they where they how they sound what they feel like and where they might possibly fit into the context of what I was doing before. So I kind of go back and forth. I'll be playing in time with the loop um, and and improvising in real time. And then when I come across something, I want to kind of break it down, move it around the instrument, check the fingering, left hand, right hand, how much I'm hammering, pulling, what's comfortable, um, if there's any string skipping involved, like all of those things. I do end up breaking it down and being quite analytical about it to get I think to get the, the the highest level of performance out of out of that idea at the end of the day you know um, so I, I'm totally comfortable with it so that hopefully just seeps into my subconscious that shape uh, and then I, I can I can I can work it into other lines You know, depending on you know, a bunch of different lines, as you heard me playing there, just mo moving around the instrument, but coming back to that one shape that. And what it is, uh, essentially, it's a minor scale up to the fifth. So one, two, minor third, fourth, fifth. And that's what you know. That's an exercise I use all the time. I put that exercise in all the good stuff or the practice room, maybe, which um, uh, like either the last book or the one before. And uh, by the way, there is a new book out right now. It's called Songs and Solos, where I transcribe my own music. That was. Uh, I really questioned my, my choice to transcribe my own music about halfway through that project because it was almost 250 hours of transcription time. I transcribed 14 of my own solos, plus I um, put all of my compositions from all of my solo records in one book. So the, the songs and the solos, that's available for download now at the store, at my online store. That's store.yannickwizdala.com, as are the, um, the, the, all the good stuff in the practice room and my very first book, You're a Musician, Now What? They are right now all bundled together. Um, we, we're running, a, I can't remember exactly what it is, but we're running a crazy discount. You can get the entire book library, all four books and two DVDs for the price of one book. Um, so if you go to store.yannickwizdala right now, um, you, you can get all of that stuff. This exercise, that just reminded me actually. It's an exercise, a minor scale exercise I've been using for, for ages and ages and ages. That's in, that's in one of the books. I think it's in all the good stuff. And there is, like, I, that came out of exactly what I've been doing today in the podcast. It came out of finding that little phrase or hearing that little phrase or extracting it from a solo I transcribed and then moving it around a set of changes or moving it around the neck as just a standalone practice uh, uh, routine idea and then adding variation to it. So... Adding a couple more notes to it to make it a 10-note phrase to move around. So... Thank you. 
you know, to, to, to make some little rhythmic variation to, uh, to really kind of mess up the brain a little bit and give it some, you know, it, give, give it a little muscle confusion of the brain um, when I'm practicing. You know, it's, it's so easy to fall into traps of playing the same idea over and over and over again, the same practice rut- routine idea. Um, so I'm always encouraging, even in the books where the, all of those ideas are written down and you get the audio for them and the video and you, and you can learn them, I'm always encouraging you to make up your own practice routines out of those exercises. And instead of playing it chromatically, like perhaps I suggested in the book, which sounds like this, maybe playing it in whole steps and ascending rather than descending or descending minor thirds. It's a little hard to do and talk. I don't think I've ever done that one in minor thirds. So maybe once I get done with the podcast, that will be my practice routine. Interesting. Now that's it. That's an interesting thing. I found out about moving in minor thirds like that. Normally I'm moving in half steps. And the transition between each half step, each position I'm playing the idea in is facilitated with a slide. So I'm starting on F here and I get back up to the F and I slide to the E. And that sounded okay with half steps. Now with whole steps, I can still get away with it with whole steps. With the minor third, I just noticed I have to pluck the top note again on the new on the new destination point because the slide wasn't really that effective. So it's a really aggressive slide if I'm going to use a slide. So now I would have to change my right hand fingering. to make that top note really stick out. So see, see, and this is what happens. It literally, I've never thought about this, never played this before, and that is how my brain is working. And moving, like finding, the, seeing, the, seeing the situation, seeing the problem, and finding the solution as quickly and as efficiently as possible, and then putting that into practice, into my practice routine, getting it into the muscle memory, and, and having it enhance my sound, my time, my phrasing, my finger strength, uh, my brain computing strength, you name it. It's all helping uh, the end goal, which is, which is a more cohesive, more natural, more relaxed um, and honest performance at the end of the day. Um, so I'll leave you with that, honest performance. I think that's a great, great thing to end on and something to think about. You know, when you're thinking about your performance and what you wanna work on, think about how honest you can be as a performer and how much work goes into um, practicing uh, a sufficient amount or more than a sufficient amount even um, to, to be an honest performer, to not play licks, to not play, to not, to not jive your audience, so to speak. Um, so that's a good one to think about, honest performance. Maybe we'll pick up on that in the next podcast. We're gonna have some interviews, we're gonna have some special guests, we're gonna do all kinds of things now. Um, I wanna try and do this on a weekly basis. Uh, it's a great medium. I love doing the podcast. I always loved doing them before. Um, and I'm sad that I took such a break from them. So um, if this is your first time listening, welcome. If you were one of the original uh, crew that, that was downloading and listening to the podcast, welcome back. Um, I will do my best to, to make this a regular thing once again. Um, but until the next one, I'm Yannick Wisdala, and, uh, and happy practicing. <laughs>